First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to be together in your word this day. And as always, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. And we thank you for the sending of your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts as we read and reflect upon what you've said. Speak to us this day. Plant your word within us. Help us to recognize all of the implications of it in our beliefs and in our actions. And then the enablement we need as we step out in obedience to you. Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick word of review. In the preceding verses, really from verses 4 to 8, we've been talking about God's great spiritual construction project. You remember how God was taking his redeemed children and building them into a spiritual house. But it wasn't a physical building that God's talking about here in First Peter. In the Old Testament, God's house was a, uh, was a physical building. It was the tabernacle initially and later on the temple. But in the New Covenant era, the New Testament era, uh, God's building is not a church building. Uh, God's building is a church people. The woven relationships of a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the church family. The relational web of it. Uh, the kids' song that they used to sing in the church was, the church is not a building, the church is not a steeple, the church is not a resting place, the church is a people. And you say, well, that was just a very childish song. Yeah, but it's profound because it got to the point here that is being underscored in First Peter. The church is a people. Now, they meet in a building, yes, at times, sometimes not, as we can see, even from some of our slides. But nonetheless, the church is a people. And God is building those people together. And as he's building them together, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and capstone of the whole project. It's what it's built upon. He's the sum total of it. He is the final piece of it. And what we decide to do with the cornerstone capstone ultimately becomes the basis upon which our eternity is determined. He, this cornerstone capstone, describes himself in John 14, 6 as the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, the message, there is no other name given whereby we might be saved. You know, the, what we do with the capstone cornerstone determines everything for us. And we ended last week with the realization that for some people, Jesus Christ, the capstone cornerstone, is ultimately an offensive stumbling stone. Those are the way the verses put it. Why? Because the very truth of the gospel, that gospel surrounding the incarnation, the word made flesh to dwell among us, living a perfect life, dying on our behalf on the cross, 
raising from the dead, sending into heaven to return later, that the truth of the gospel, which builds around the cross and the payment for sin, offends them. It is, as it put it, a rock of offense. Their pride, as human beings, says, I'm unwilling to admit my need. I don't think I need that. What do you mean I'm not good enough for God? And that's how humanity responds. And so when you share the gospel, you stir up an offense. Now, you can share in an offensive manner, and God, God is not encouraging that. But, brothers and sisters, there's nothing you can do about the fact that the actual gospel itself offends people. Because it calls into question everything they built their life around. And God calls for us in love to share that message with a lost world so that they can, number, under, number one, understand who he is, understand what their problem is, and understand the great love expressed in what God did to solve it. But there will still be those who reject and stumble over the living stone, turning him into a stumbling stone. But they face accountability before God because they've rejected the only way to escape judgment. Remember Hebrews chapter 9, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. The only way that you don't have that happen with that finality is to pass out of judgment into life. In John 5, 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. So, is Jesus the stumbling stone of your life, or is he the cornerstone capstone of your life? It's a choice that people have to make about the gospel. Now, today, in these verses I read to you, verses 9 and 10, uh, God identifies for us four important changes in what I'm calling our status, our position, that come as a result of the decision to place our faith in the cornerstone capstone. Four dramatic changes, actually, about us that are true of us as individuals, also true of us as that spiritual house that he's building that body of believers. And the formula to see the four different things that he changes here for us is the formula, once we weren't, now we are. I mean, that's the over, overriding formula in these verses. So let's look at them together. Number one, but you are, in verse nine, a chosen race. God has now made us, as people who place their faith in the cornerstone capstone he has made us a chosen race that's a dramatic change in the status of our life verse 10 explains our previous thing he said once you were not a people <laughs> that's the truth but now you are people God's people uh, once we were not a people. Ephesians 2 develops that and tells us, listen, we were hopeless, wandering nomads in the world like gypsies. We didn't have a country. We didn't have any sort of connectedness. We were just floating like the refugee. That, that was the picture of who we were. Uh, Ephesians 2 goes on and says, listen, uh, you were at that time, prior to Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, 
and without God in this world. That's the message that offends the natural man that we're talking about. He says, you didn't have any hope. You were without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once so far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a beautiful picture that develops for us. But now in Christ, the one who is the cornerstone capstone, in him we've been brought near. Upon our repentance and faith in the gospel, when we chose to rest in the work on the cross. And our circumstance changed dramatically. We who were not a people have now become, in the words of verse 9, a chosen race of God. A chosen race, a new status altogether for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Using the imagery of spiritual house and construction that we encountered in the preceding verses here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. But Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 22 says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the very household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom that whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's the spiritual house that we're talking about. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The new status is this. We can now call ourselves a chosen race of God. Unless you think that's not too important, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, uses that terminology in this way. Jesus, speaking to the ethnic Jews, he says, Listen, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Same terminology, by the way, that we encounter here in 1 Peter. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And that is the picture of the redeemed believer. Out of all of the people turning to Christ, God has chosen us, and we are a chosen race. Now, clearly, rightly dividing the word of truth, we understand that certain promises, prophetic promises that God gave to ethnic Israel will be fulfilled for ethnic Israel. But it doesn't change the reality that we are now, like Israel, a chosen race of God. That's what God uses the terminology of. I'd say that's a pretty remarkable change. Wandering gypsy Chosen race. I don't think we think about these things enough. Doesn't matter what your country of origin is, or if you don't even have a country of origin, uh, you're a chosen race. That's not all he says. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What a tremendous change. Our old status was this. We were objects of wrath. Ephesians 2 began by saying, we're by nature objects of wrath. Uh, That's the story of our lives. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. I mean, there's the picture of all of humanity. We were hopelessly lost sinners as a result of sin, cut off from the God who was really there. We couldn't even come into his presence, let alone stay with him. We couldn't even come into his presence 
we faced that Hebrews 9, 27 certainty of after death then comes judgment. But after, stat, after salvation, after placing our faith in the cornerstone capstone, he says, now I've changed you into a royal priesthood. In verse 5, we discovered the priesthood of all believers, that one of the results of becoming a believer is that we are made priests. All of us are on the same level. Priesthood of believers, that's one of the great Reformation uh, sounding boards, that we are a priesthood of believers. Now we find in Christ, we're not only priests, we're royal priests. Same passage, adding another dimension to it. What's a royal priesthood? That was, using that imagery, that was the priesthood who were assigned to handle the household of the king. You know, you think of a little bit, you can see a little bit of that still in places in England, for example. There are certain people who are in the Anglican church who are given their assignment is to be the priest to the house of Windsor. or They're, they're the priest for the, for the queen, now the king's family. They're, they're, in a, they're a royal priest. Uh, they might not be the archbishop, but they have this special call. God uses that terminology to describe the believer. He says, listen, you're not only a priest now, you know, priesthood of all believers, you're all, you're all on the same level in that sense, but understand and remind yourself, you're now priests of the royalty. You are priests of the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You're his priest. I was thinking in the beginning of the book of Revelation, In verses 5 and 6, listen to these words. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Of course, Jesus. And has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's the same terminology. He's made us priests, royal priests. Now, One of the things you know as you study through the scriptures is that God intended Israel to be royal priests as well. Listen to these words in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But of course... By rebellion and rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came, Israel failed in that call. Uh, They didn't stay what he intended them to be. Instead of being a light to the nations, they conformed to the world. They They became an image of darkness, not an image of light, sadly. That's why, by the way, it's so wonderful in the prophetic picture the scripture gives us that just prior to Christ's return, as we enter into that final capstone period of human history, we're going to find within ethnic Israel a turning to the Lord again after a long last, coming to their senses, repenting and believing in the one who had been sent. But right now, that's not the case. There's individuals who turn to Christ, but I'm talking as a, as a people that doesn't occur at this point. So God has made you and I into a royal priesthood. You know, you can, you can do quite a bit with your vitae here. <laughs> you know, who are you? Oh, I'm a royal priest here. You know, God's, God's called on me, you know. Royal priest. 
But that's not all. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Our old status, as I've already said, we're a bunch of unholy, wandering misfits, rebelling against God. That's the picture of who we were. Every one of us. I mean, we don't have any exception clauses. That's, that's who everybody was. Now, he says, I've turned you into a holy nation. In a sense, it's proper to say that the church is a holy nation because God says that about him. But God doesn't mean by that that he wants us to set up sort of a political entity much like Israel and now we have a church nation. That was a mistake made throughout church history. That's not... He has a kingdom coming in which... But the kingdom that we're a part of, that nation, is not one marked by geographic boundaries. Uh, and we are part of that. God made us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone capstone, what Israel failed to become in their rebellion. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, remember it said, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and if you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And they weren't. They were not a holy nation. But he said, he has made us that. How? Through justification. Not because we are such good people. We were all messes. Thankfully, messes he loved enough to send his son to die for us. But it's through justification by faith that we've been made now a holy nation. A holy nation. A nation in which we are citizens forever. Philippians 3 picks up on that a little bit in verse 20 when it talks about our citizenship is in heaven. (laughs) We're a holy nation. We wandering, messed up people. God says, you're a holy nation. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. And in Christ, you're a holy nation. I mean, it's astounding if you think about it. How, How can that be? And yet God says it is. And then he goes on. A people for his own possession. The fourth change. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. Brothers and sisters, prior to placing our faith in the cornerstone capstone, We were possessed by someone and something else. Colossians chapter 1, talking about us prior to knowing Christ and after coming to know Christ, puts it this way in verses 13 and 14. Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You and I were part of the kingdom of darkness. That's where we were. That's, we weren't the treasured possession of the Lord. We were a mess. And we were part of the very darkness of rebellion against God. That's who we were. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he puts it this way. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the very prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were actually followers of the world and followers of the ruler of this present age. And who's that? The enemy of our souls. That was our reality. Humanity and its deceptions thinks, well, I was in charge of my own life. That's deception. It's deception. We were part of the domain or kingdom of darkness. We, we were... We were following the power of the prince of the air, the enemy of our souls. That was the truth of everyone. Not because they consciously got involved in witchcraft, but because that was the nature of what life was, lived in rebellion against God. Remember Jesus talking to the Jews in John 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and a follower of the lies. We all followed a different father, knowingly or unknowingly. (laughs) That was who we were. We turned to Christ, placed our faith in the cornerstone capstone, and God says, now, you're a people belonging to God. You mean we didn't beforehand? No. That's the whole point of the gospel. You didn't before. Do now. Belong to him. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 17, a wonderful phrase is used about the Jews in the Old Testament. Listen to this. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, and this is, by the way, prophetic also of the end times, they will be my treasured possession. A treasured possession. God says, I'm using that phrase now also for those that place their faith in the cornerstone capstone. They are my treasured possession. Peripioisis in the Greek refers to this word possession. It means one's own property. One's own possession. God says, they're my property now. <laughs> uh, I have ownership over their life. Titus 2 puts it this way, For the grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We're people belonging to God. People belonging to God. By the way, if you belong to God, you have no right to be controlling your own life. Remember in Romans 12, 1, it talks about presenting your bodies as living sacrifices. 
which is our reasonable worship. You know what the Greek says there? Present your body as a living sacrifice, which is the only sane thing to do to worship God. Why? Because the only thing that makes any sense is if you've been bought with a price, and all of these things are true of us, your life belongs to Him. You live it for Him. You present your body as a living sacrifice. That's what makes sense. If I'm His people for His own possession, 1 Corinthians 6.19 puts it this way, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Later on in 1 Peter 4, we're going to discover, he says, hey, you've lived enough of your life, literally wasted enough of your life, living for self-will and human passions. Live the rest of what you got for the will of God. Uh, A lot more to say about that when we finally get to it, but (laughs) that's the point he's making. By the way, if you have the King James Version, anybody reading out of the King James Version today? If you have the King James Version, it translates this, a peculiar people. A lot of people said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But many Christians I've known are peculiar people. You know, The word peculiar has a range of meanings. The main meaning of the word peculiar, around 1600 A.D., that period of time in which the translation was beginning and moving forward in the King James Version, the particular, the main meaning of peculiar meant to belong exclusively to. Over the centuries, while that's still one of the minor meanings of it, if you go down the list on a really good dictionary, the main meaning of peculiar now is strange or odd. I mean, that's what the word means. Uh, So, the ESV does a great job capturing what and the translators of the King James did, too, in their era. They captured the meaning of the Greek here. A people for his own possession. The New American Standard Version translates it, God's own people. You know, we're God's own people. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession. Well, let me end with just a few couple comments. He concludes this description of this changed condition of our life, the changed status. Somebody said, well, isn't that status? Well, it depends on what state you're in. Status, status, I don't care how you use it. But the point is, there's two concluding points about it he makes. He says, all of this was done that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God change all of these things about us? Not just save us, but why did he change all of this? And the answer is, his core purpose was that we would be involved in proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. The reason God did all of this stuff and changed us in the way is that we would be public witness. We will now fulfill what Israel didn't fulfill, which was to proclaim God to the world to share the light of the truth in the midst of the dark world. We're called to be his witnesses, telling a lost sinful world about the new covenant in Christ's blood, offered by the loving God to sinful mankind. That's that's our task. He says, I've done all these things, and I've kept you here rather than take you to be with me, because I want you involved in 
proclaiming where I've placed you the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his light. Same idea, by the way, that 2 Corinthians has in chapter 5, where it says, verses 18 onward, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which means, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, and therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. That's what he's talking about. He says, all of these changes are there because I've changed all of this status. Now you're my royal priest. Now you're all of these things. You're going out and communicating to people in wonderful ways about what I did for you and what I want to do for them. The ultimate disastrous response for a believer is quietness. Because the only reason he leaves us here ultimately is the opposite to be communicators, to share, to tell others. The second thing he says. He ends this verse 10 by saying, Once you had not received mercy, now you receive mercy. My core purpose in the changes, be my proclaimer, be my ambassador, share. But don't ever do it forgetting what's foundational to all of this. All this happened because of my mercy, not your good works. All of this amazing stuff is ours because of the mercy of God. We have no right to that mercy. But God was merciful to us anyway in the Lord Jesus Christ. We who deserve judgment found grace instead because of the one who came and died on our behalf and rose again. So he says, listen, as you're out proclaiming, and even though you have some amazing titles now, (laughs) changes in status, I want you to be humble. I want you to be humble before me, and I want you to be humble before people. The changes you have, you didn't earn. The changes you have, you didn't deserve. They're all just a gracious gift from me. And it's a gift I want to give to them. We don't go out from a position of strength saying, well, I've done a pretty good job remodeling my life. (laughs) We go out from a position of weakness and say, well, I I was like you. Fact is, we were all lost sinners saved by grace. Uh, When I'm sharing with somebody, I'm sharing with them because we're on the same point. The only thing different between us is that I've chosen to place my faith in the cornerstone capstone. And as a result, God did some things, not me. Made me a new creation, born anew, indwelt by the Spirit, and on and on the list goes. But it was God doing all that stuff, not me. What I did is decided, I won't follow him. I'm going to act on this truth. I'm going to believe in it. So he says, as you go about with these changed status things, and as you proclaim them to others, and remember that's why I left you, that you would, always do it in a humble manner. Not seeing yourselves as better than anybody else. 
You don't have anything you didn't receive. So share with them how they can receive it. Share with them how they can receive it. He then builds on all of this, Lord willing. We'll come back to it next week. And he begins to talk now about how to live successfully in the midst of a fallen world in which we are really exiles and aliens. He says, if in fact I did all these things so that you could be my proclaimer there, we're going to spend some time talking about how you're supposed to live in the midst of that mess so that you can be my proclaimer and I can make use of you in accomplishing my purposes. I look at all of these things, and I'm astounded, really. I look at these things, we review them, and I say, Lord, how, how is this all possible? How could this be true? And God says, because I love you. I sent my son to die for you. And he did stuff that you could never even begin to understand right now that made it all possible. The issue is, you're going to trust me? You're going to take me at my word? If I say it, are you going to go to the bank with it? <laughs> or are you not going to do it? I think it's good for us to be astounded and awed, bewildered even at times, by the things that God has to say. It shows that we're grappling with it and trying to understand it. And pinch ourselves and say, can that really be? And God says, ah, you're starting to understand. You're starting to understand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a chance to be together in your word this day. Always so much more we could say at each point, but thank you that we could look at what we did look at. Plant within us an appreciation for the wonder that is ours in Christ, the changes that you've made, the new positions you put us into and the responsibility you intend us to carry out as your spokesman in a lost world that needs you. Thank you for that. Be with us in this day now and in this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, my friends. Have a great week, and uh, we'll gather together, Lord willing, next Sunday.